I am Brendan Slocum, musician, educator, and author of the upcoming novel, The Violin Conspiracy. I'm here to tell you how music can save your life. Each week, I'll be joined by someone whose life was also changed by music. Since I'm a classically trained musician, many of my guests might come from that world, too. But fair warning, I also rock out to Drake and the Black Eyed Peas and everything in between. So no matter what type of music you listen to or play, you're in for an interesting, inspiring, and lively conversation. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Daniel Romain, composer, performer, educator, and social entrepreneur. He has worked with artists like Philip Glass and Bill T. Jones, and also Lady Gaga. He's appeared on NPR, American Idol, and ESPN. He's also collaborated with the Sydney Opera. Acclaimed as a violinist and activist, Daniel's career spans more than two decades. He's earned commission by several artists and institutions worldwide. Enough of all of that. I'm really happy to introduce you to my new friend, Daniel Romain. Tell us, how did you get started doing what you do? And was there a particular person or an event that inspired you? Tell us basically the story of Daniel Romain. Well, I was born in Chicago in 1970. I started playing the violin when I was five years old. Started picking up instruments when I was about 10 years old. So I play about 30 instruments now or so. Not well, but I play and, you know, I, I, I play. Started composing when I was 10. Went to a performing arts high school, the same one that Black Violin and Jason Derulo went to, Dillard School of the Arts in Fort Lauderdale. Cool. Yeah, went to Vanderbilt University. Went to uh, University of Michigan. And then headed to New York City, 1997 where I still live. I live in three places, New York, Massachusetts, and Arizona. And just started pounding it out in New York. 1997, Harlem, 119th Street and 6th Avenue. Miss Logan, my landlady. Uh, <laughs> Shouts out to Miss Logan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Miss Logan. And um, I think Margate, Florida. I was born in Chicago, but grew up in Margate, Florida. I think Nashville, Tennessee, where Vanderbilt was. I think Ann Arbor, Michigan, and certainly Harlem, New York City. Maybe this is a good way to say it. Geography has played a very consequential role in my artistry. And were it not for Margate and Nashville and um, maybe Tennessee and uh, Michigan and certainly New York, Harlem, specifically Harlem. I was very intent on living in Harlem for many reasons. Then my career would be completely different. I don't even know if I'd be a musician, to tell you the truth. Oh wow! Yeah, I don't. I don't think I would have. I mean, it was 1975 in Margate, Florida, where if you were a five-year-old black boy, every elementary school had an orchestra. Every elementary school. So um, this is in the 70s. This is in the 70s, and it didn't cost anything. It didn't cost you got a you got an instrument, you got a book of music, you were in an ensemble, you got a private lesson. My recollection once a week. And didn't cost my parents anything but effort, you know. So times have changed, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. But um, I got lucky in that sense. And even Harlem. I mean, New York City, 1997. Harlem was a very different place than it is now. But I, I would say in a nutshell, that's, that's how things happened for me. You know, playing the violin sent me on my way. Composing sent me on my way. Many people who were obstacles, but also a lot of allies, a lot of great teachers. You know, you know, there's there's plenty of names in there. Not enough black people, 
in my, you know, who were my teachers because there just weren't enough black people teaching. It's one of the reasons I'm teaching now, as a matter of fact. But um, yeah, I would say succinctly, geography and certain key people in those places changed my life forever. In Nashville, well, Tennessee in general, your college years, Mm -hmm. let's talk about it. I went to a performing arts high school, and by my senior year, I was working for the Florida Philharmonic Orchestra in the box office, taking lessons on the side with their assistant conductors and a few other musicians. I was also working for Two Life Crew, Uh, seminal 80s uh, hip-hop group. Yeah. And Luke Skywalker Records in uh, Miami. I was an intern uh, working in the box office. (laughs) But I also, every now and then, you know, played a little keyboard because I could play. Played Mm -hmm. on certain tracks anonymously. (laughs) And I was around Luther Campbell almost uh, every day. Well, every day during the summer. Just about every day during the summer. And, you know, the guys from... I mean, they, they started out as the ghetto style DJs. And they did house parties, street parties. And then, you know, it became a multi, multi-million dollar company. I mean, we, we pressed our own records and sent them all around the world. I remember said, sending clean versions of our records, packing them to send to the first Gulf War. Oh, wow. You know, and you had to put stickers, and you had to black everything out. And, you know, we had stickers for all that stuff. Uh, oh, I say that to you because that was my pedigree up until that point. Matter of fact, I remember Luther, Luther Mr. Campbell, sorry, that's what we call him. Mr. Campbell <laughs> made an offer to me. He said, man, you don't have to go off to school, just stay here. You're doing great, you know, you're going to make a lot of money and you're going to have a lot of fun. And what are you, you going to do at some school? <laughs> you know, we, we, had a, we had a very interesting lunch about, about this. And uh, Debbie Bennett, Debbie, every, every, every afternoon, Mr. Campbell, because you can call his house before 12 o'clock, he would come <laughs> in after playing several rounds of golf and he'd start, De- uh, Debbie Bennett, where's Debbie Bennett? You know, running, screaming up and down the hallway for Debbie. Debbie Bennett was the... Um, kind of the CEO, chief financial officer. No, no, she wasn't the CFO. She was actually the executive director, CEO of Luther of Luke Skywalker Enterprises. Uh-huh. So we had a lot of conversations. I also had a lot of conversations with Joe Levitt, who was the CEO of the Florida Philharmonic. So it, it, it was interesting that I had these two lives in, in these really two very successful South Florida-based music companies who never worked together, who didn't even know each other existed. You know, it was just very, very separate. Separate. I was the only, actually, as I think about it, I was probably the only person who was going from one office to the other. And even when school started, I would, you know, after school, go do stuff. <laughs> and, you know, but all of that to say that by the time I got to Vanderbilt, I was already thinking that way. I was thinking in a very hybrid fashion. So it wasn't unusual for me to work with Victor Wooten and the Wooten brothers and Mark O'Connor and Bela Fleck and watch them practice and Edgar Meyer, all these incredible kind of bluegrass classical musicians who were doing their own bluegrass hybrid thing. And then also hang out with a lot of gospel music in Nashville, mm. a lot of reggae music, a lot of world, what they call world music, you know. So I met Waylon Jennings, you know, all this stuff. So I was able to kind of go through all of these worlds off campus, off campus and on, or bring them onto campus, mm-hmm. like into my recitals. I was, I was doing a lot of different, I, to put it succinctly, <laughs> I never thought of myself as a freshman or sophomore or whatever. I never thought, I always thought of, as, as my education is just one aspect of many things I was doing. I spent a lot of time at the School of Music, but I spent a lot of time in studios. I spent a lot of time downtown. I spent a lot of time in bars. I spent I spent a lot of times just looking at the wide spectrum of music, and it was just, it was just my again what I was doing in South Florida, and that as you can you can see where I'm going with this, 
that actually also made an important difference because I, as much time as I spent in the rehearsal room, I also spent, well, hanging out on the street with people and wow. musicians. Yeah. That is fascinating. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know that I've met too many other people that was, you know, down with two live crew and you know, Vivaldi. That's, I thought it was just me. <laughs> oh, that's a, that would be a fascinating study. I am really yeah. glad we got to meet. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Man. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, see, I'm mind blown. It's under this hat. I'm blown. Like, okay. So early in your career, what was one of the most uh, significant challenges that you faced and what did you do to overcome it? Racism. Okay. Still there. Yeah. And huh, I don't know if I've overcome it in a way. I mean, part of the anger and the fuel, I, I have recontextualized it. I've gotten older and I've been able to, um, to, um, to understand it and to understand its causes and its depth. And it's, um, it's a kind of virus you know, it is. It's a kind of virus. I mean, it, sometimes someone is racist and they don't even know it. They have no symptoms. Because <laughs> this is language that I think a lot of people of color have always felt, but we weren't able to really maybe even talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think, and not, you know, as I've said, there's at least two pandemics. One is certainly COVID-19 and uh, racism and um, hatred. I mean, if you talk about racism enough, it almost sounds like you're talking about COVID-19, right? And I think that's that that's... a really fascinating yeah, uh, comparison. Yeah. yeah. Someone who is so clearly racist, you, 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 in some ways, you do have a certain empathy for them. I've had, every Black person has had, I've been called, I remember being called the N-word when I was five years old. I remember music teachers telling me, you should really think about going into uh, anything but music. I remember, you know, conductors uh, laughing at me, or uh, when I show up to the, you know, showing up to, I won't name it symphony, showing up backstage at, at Symphony Hall and and being asked if I was the driver of this conductor. <laughs> I remember that one. I was like, "Wow, really?" Yeah. So you know, that, let, that, let, me, let me stop you yeah. for one second. Let me stop <laughs> yeah, you, okay? Because yeah. I'm I'm tripping just a little bit because oh, only no 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 no. This is yeah. great. Only because these are very very familiar. Yes. Very familiar scenarios, and yes. uh, you know when when I tell people that these things happen, and you know certain instances have occurred with me showing up at places, and mm-hmm. they don't believe it. They honestly don't believe it. No, things like that don't happen. Do you think it's hard to talk about these issues or hard for people to accept and listen to them? Probably three things. It's hard to talk about them, hard to hear and accept, mm-hmm. and then hard to have actionable behaviors to correct. You know, systemic, systemic anti-racism is very hard. You can have anti-racist moments, and that's what's happening at the Met. You can have, um, you can have moments of equity, moments that are you know, like ships in the night. They, they, uh, they quickly come and they quickly go. But to actually get to a point where there's equity, there's actual change, there's actually empathy in an organization, you're asking a lot. And, I, you know, and look, I, I got to stop just picking on organizations and people. I have a lot of work to do, you know? Okay, the Met hasn't commissioned. A, I haven't commissioned enough BIPOC people in my life. Right? I have not been a good advocate to the AAPI community. 
mm-hmm. and our good Asian and Pacific Island who are still suffering, who are still being beaten in the street. I think that one of the things I'm really thinking about going into 2022 is what is the work that I need to do and talk about publicly? As much as like every Black person or BIPOC person in this country, we have all suffered some type of racism or will. I also feel that it is very important, at least for me, my work is to be an advocate for the things that I haven't done and that I need to do and that I will do on behalf of not only certain races, but certain people who are marginalized, who are in pain, who are neglected. I pray for it. You think that would be simpler than it is. It doesn't sound like it's it's too far-fetched, but you know, it's, 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 right. it's, a, it's a sad state. You know what? Let's hope that it happens. 22 yeah. will be the year. 22. 20. <laughs> hey, <laughs> 22. I love hey, it. Hey, we, I love made it. it. we made it through 2022 is going to be it. That's 2022 it. is going to be it. I'm with you, brother. I'm okay. You. Well, uh, Daniel, everybody has at least one person who like really had a significant impact on their life and their career and the course that you're currently on. You know, I, you mentioned some uh, former teachers. Who was that person for you and, and what happened? Mr. Miller, who now that I realize he was in a public school, he got all these instruments. He had a rudimentary understanding, a wonderful um, um, pianist, but, and, you know, had a basic understanding of all the other instruments in the orchestra. And he, you know, the Margate Strings, the Margate String Orchestra, he put us all together, making us play at retirement centers all throughout Florida. You know, a demerit system. If you didn't wash your hands, comb your hair before you pick up the violin. I mean, you know, wow. you know these types of people are, they're, to me, they're, they're saints because I realize now as an adult and as a parent how much they just did. Mm-hmm. Wasn't enough money, wasn't enough benefits. And I know we're, we're going through a situation right now where, and I understand this, millions of people, particularly young people, are demanding to be paid a certain wage, a living wage, right? I understand that. But this is something different. I'm talking about I had adults in my life, beginning with my parents, who truly sacrificed. They weren't first responders. And this is the lesson for us all, Brendan. They weren't first responders, but they were second. They were third. They were fourth. They were there. They were present. Yeah. What is your perception of the uh, climate for uh, Black musicians? And do you think that there's a divide between Black and white musicians nowadays? Yes, probably has always been. The climate for Black musicians in general, in some ways, in America, where I feel most qualified to speak, in some ways, some way, in many ways, has never been better. I, you know, look, Brianna is a billionaire. Right. Musician. Kanye West, billionaire. Musician. When you think about how many musicians, if you just think about that legacy, think about, okay, so Rihanna may be the most wealthy. Mm-hmm. So my mind goes to, well, who was the poorest, right? Who was the poor? Who is? Who was the poorest? That's the pendulum. So that's why I can say, right, we have a billionaire Black woman in the world who is a musician. When you ask me a question about the overall climate for for Black musicians, well, that's, that's the filter I'm looking at, that what a tremendous amount of success if you just look at it through that lineage, if you, were mm-hmm. to, if you were able to really connect the dots and go one by one. That's fascinating. I also think that whether it's classical music, believe it or not, or 
um, you know, hip hop music and pop music is kind of a little easier. I do think you have representation of black and BIPOC people. So a tremendous amount of progress has been made. And we need to, again, as I was saying before, we need to say it and acknowledge it and say progress. Just one word. Does that mean satisfaction? Does that mean completion? No. And we have a long way to go. As I like to remind people, this is an easy statistic. I proudly sit on the board for the League of American Orchestras. There are 1.8... Uh, classical musicians who identify as Black make up 1.8% of the musicians in our professional orchestras. Not two. 1.8. See, I had the stat wrong. I always said 2%. Oh. Well, well it, it's okay to round up. I mean, it, that sounds better. And 1.8 is a tick up from 1.5, the last five years of which I've been, you know, with the league. But we're at 1.8. That's, 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 and, and you know, I, I'm actually terrified, you know, these are hard and fast. These aren't hard and fast numbers. So maybe it's a little more. I hope so. It could be a little less. But that's where we are. But I like to broaden it out. Who are... How many Black or BIPOC people are teaching music in university, in high schools, in our colleges? So when I say I probably teach at Arizona State University, and hopefully I'll be a tenured professor there in the coming months, I'm not saying that as a conceit or, or as a braggadocious statement. I'm saying that as, wow, I, I know I'm, I'm rare. And we need more Black men, Black women, Black people teaching in our universities. This is what I mean by second responders, you know. Gotcha. Rihanna is rarefied and glorious as she should be. But what about us mere mortals? And that's <laughs> and right, well that's why I get excited because, you know, there is so much anybody in just about any station in life can do in their community. Mm-hmm. You know. I think that Regardless of our station in life, and for so many Black people and BIPOC people in this country, life is just hard. It's just every day it is relentless. I mean, when I was in Harlem in 1970, I saw, that's one reason I wanted to be there. It's still here, Tempe, Arizona. You know, it's, there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of things here that are just hard. So being in the thick of it, understanding it, you can make micro and macro contributions to your fellow human being any day of the week. And, you know, sometimes it's a smile. Sometimes it's, especially nowadays, a handshake. Mm-hmm. If the person will let you and embrace an acknowledgement that they're there. My mother would always do this. If my mother didn't have money, she would just stop and talk and force us as children to talk to someone who was homeless. Just talk. In so many ways, you are what you see. <laughs> you are what you hear. You are what you believe, right? You are what you smell, what you taste. So if I'm going to be commissioned to write a piece, I have a choice. Everybody does, Brendan, right? If you're hired, you have a choice. If you can name something, name it well. I have a choice. Symphony number one or hip-hop essay for orchestra. Symphony number two or they still want to kill us, (laughs) right? then let the music reflect that. Ask for that singer to sing your song, right? Do you have an assistant or do you have an associate? I don't, use, I, don't, right, I don't use the word student, never, no. Uh-uh, contributors. We're all contributors to a classroom and a world of ideas. Okay, I'm writing that down. Right, yeah, right? Because if I say I'm the teacher and you're the student, that's not equitable. 
And it sets up a certain inequitable relationship. But if I say, I'm not here to teach you anything. We are all contributors to our time together. That sets up a relationship that not only speaks to equity, but it's true. I don't know one teacher that hasn't learned from their so-called students, right? And whether you're five or 95, you have something to offer. You just got to see it, hear it, believe it, taste it, live it, relish in it. So if you have a personal assistant, I mean, you know, I'm dealing with this right now where, you know, I, I don't assistant. No, you're an associate. Where what 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 or what are the words we can dream together? What are, what are the words that we can come up with together? Words carry weight, they carry history, right? They carry connotation. Right? Yes, absolutely. So here's another easy example. Rehearsal. I've been going to rehearsals all my life. I'm still guilty of this. Rehearsals almost another name for rehearsal. I do this all the time. Oh my God. Music contributors, students, contributors. I put that in the chat. What's in it? Oh, practice. Um, communion. <laughs> uh, not a music rehearsal, a music offering, a music jam, a music get together, a music event that's going to involve all of my people. <laughs> wow. Now imagine a syllabus, imagine a, a curriculum that had classes, terms, that had all these you know, different approaches by the names of something. Even a liquid syllabus, I oftentimes use what I call a liquid syllabus, just like it implies. It changes, it has a flow. It's not rigid. Hmm. Oftentimes students, contributors get married to this notion of a syllabus. It cannot change. No, it's a liquid syllabus. Okay, sorry, man. That's I'm really give shorter answers. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> no, it's, it's cool. Me. You know, that's the magic of editing. It's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> Please do. Please do. A couple more questions for you. Yeah, um, yeah. What is your favorite piece of music, favorite composer? Can be contemporary, classical, whatever. Well, it changes every day, as you can imagine. So today, you know, I was listening, I was, I was, I was actually listening to uh, Sade. Oh. First record. No, 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 I don't know. I don't know which record it is, but it's um, uh, Sweetest Taboo. Uh. And, and you know, she's a, almost a character singer. I mean, she has, a, she has a wonderful voice, alto, low alto. You know, she doesn't belt. She doesn't do the vocal gymnastics. Almost pure tone. Very little vibrato. She's got almost like a singing voice, and then she's got that little head voice, even in that song. The way it starts, if I tell you. Yeah. Tell you now. I mean, that's right. For I think there's a particular type of confidence one has to have when you almost kind of whisper, sing, talk, sing, right? Like, like a, 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 I'm revealing my age, not Aretha Franklin, but um, you know Tony Braxton or something. You know, these are milky singers. You know, there's a it's like a thick water that has depth and substance to it. So if you listen to Sweetest Taboo, you know, it's just bottom of her range. It's almost like she's talking to you. And by the time you get to the chorus, she's at her upper, you know, sweet, you know, she's up there. Yeah. And it's yeah. a different tone. So almost almost her head voice. But that's about it. You got the the talking voice and the head voice. But the construction of the song, the production, her team, and the way her voice is almost an instrument pushed out front. And the words, you know, the words that the lyrics, these are love songs, sure. But the words, I mean, name another song that says sweetest taboo, <laughs> right? That's <laughs> to pimp a butterfly, <laughs> right? That's another one, Kendrick Lamar. I mean, 
well, that album, I was listening to that the other day, yeah, actually. Yeah. Remarkable. By the way, I'd like to say Pulitzer Prize winner in composition. Yeah. Fantastic. I would say, you know, if you've got time, if your listeners have time, check out anything by Sade. Check out any, I hope I'm saying that right, pronouncing that right, and check out anything by Kendrick Lamar, because I think that three things. I think that they're, I think that they're wordsmiths. Kendrick Lamar, we expect that. Sade, you don't. But again, sweetest taboo. I mean, it's really fascinating. I think that they're wordsmiths. Number two, I think that they have iconic voices. You, 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 they could be singing a cappella, you know immediately who they are. Exactly, yeah. Right? So that's called a clang farben melody or a tone color melody timbre. They're, the timbral patterning of their voices, the way their voices sound, is very much unique to them, iconic to me, virtuoso. Very hard to do because it's such a dense field. We have a lot of singers. We have a lot of rap artists. You know, Da Baby and, you know, others. I, I love, oh, I shouldn't say it that way. It's hard for me as, as, the, as the marketplace for music becomes more and more fragmented. It's hard, I think, to find iconic voices that are truly unique. It becomes harder, okay? And then the third thing that I think is I love the construction, the pure production of their music. Ironically, if you take their voices away, the pure construction of the music is, is, is very complicated, very satisfying. And it points to a lot of different musical influences. I mean, with Sade, you've got West African jazz, soul, of course, R&B. With Kendrick Lamar, you have everything from hot jazz, even fusion to noise, to rock, to R&B. You know, there's a lot going on in both of them. And they've come up with something that's really potent, really wonderful. I am 100% in agreement. I, I, I love both those artists. I do. It's oh, good, awesome. good stuff. Yeah. Well, you know what, Daniel? This has been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> I mean, I, I could do this all day long, and yeah. I, I hope we get to, to speak again relatively soon. I would love soon. it. I would, love would it. be I mean, I just, I feel like I'm a better person just because oh, I've listened to you. No, I'm keeping it real. I'm keeping it real. I for real. Oh, for real. Wow. Ah, uh, that's just, I mean, that is awesome. And thank you so much. And and tell us where we can find you, where we can find your stuff. Your, um... I'm easy to find. If you Google search DBR, Daniel Bernard Remain, a bunch comes up. It's either like me and Duke Basketball Report. <laughs> <laughs> and for your listeners, if you really want to get into it, it's just myname.com. So Daniel, as it's spelled, Remain, R-O-U, M as in Mary, A-I-N as in Nancy, A-I-N as in Nancy, DanielRemain.com. That's it. Everything you need is there. Oh, there you go. You heard it from the man himself. Everything you need is right there. You know what? I'm hoping to be able to check you out in concert relatively soon. I oh, love your stuff. Appreciate that. Man. Dude, I, thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you. Pleasure. See you again soon. How Music Can Save Your Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Brendan Slocum. Produced by Hannah Ray Leach and mixed by Eric Coltnow. Special thanks to Jeff Kleinman and everyone at Anchor Books for their help with this podcast. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about me and my novel, The Violin Conspiracy, check out my website, brendanslocum.com. I'll see you next time. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. 
Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.